a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. In the history of organized crime, there are a lot of recognizable characters. Al Capone. John Dillinger. Pretty Boy Floyd. You know, we could go on and on and on. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a pattern here. All of these names, they're men. There's lots of Al's, John's, Joe's, Jimmy's. You know, J names seem to be really popular. And a lot of these guys, they aren't masterminds. They're muscle. They're murderers who happen to have been immortalized in movies and TV shows for their crimes. And the women next to them are usually depicted as arm candy. Most of the women you see in these shows are mistresses or mob wives. They're not the actual mobsters. They hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil. But Virginia Hill is not a mob wife. She's a mobster and a mastermind. You could argue she was the glue that brought the mob together. In the 1940s, Virginia Hill is the bridge that connects organized crime in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. At her peak fame, she is the third most wanted person in America. And though you won't hear her name in Goodfellas or The Godfather, Virginia Hill's legacy is ultimately immortalized in television history. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. A little bit about Virginia Hill, where she started from, where she came from. Virginia Hill is born in Lipscomb, Alabama in 1916. She's one of like nine or ten kids fathered by Mac Hill. Now, we don't know if it's nine or ten kids. I mean, do you think when people asked how many siblings she had, she said, you know, I don't know, nine or ten? There's a lot of them in there. It's it's easy that one would it's slip by. It's easy to lose track. <laughs> she grows up in um, a four-room shack. Really, they're just dirt poor. It reminds me, uh, when I read that, of playing MASH and that she got yeah. the S. She got the shack. Ooh. Yeah. Bummer. Her father's a horse and mule trader, but he spends most of his money on booze and chicks instead of, uh, I don't know, food for the nine or ten kids that he has. He sounds great, right? Father of the Year award material. (laughs) Totally. No, absolutely not. He's a drunk and a scoundrel who hates his life. And he takes the anger he feels out on his kids. And he specifically targets Virginia because she's the smallest of the bunch and she's pretty passive. She's a child. Virginia's brothers call her Tab, uh, as in a tabby cat, because she's just so thin and waif-like. And at first, Virginia feels like by suffering this abuse, by being uh, her the star sort of victim in this household, that she's protecting those siblings. But most of all, she's afraid that if she fights back, she might lose the love of her father. And at the ripe age of seven years old... Virginia grows tired of his abuse. She's exhausted by her father's drunken attitude, and she wants to stand up for herself. But even though she's much smaller and weaker than her father, she finds a way to force him to stop. Yeah, as it turns out, it's actually easier than she expected. All it takes is a lot of courage. (laughs) 
So one night her dad comes home and he's filled with booze and rage and he goes for her. But she has a surprise, which is that this time she's actually going to defend herself. She grabs the nearest thing to her, which in this case is a skillet with sizzling sausage grease in it. And she hits him in the chest, spraying him with the hot grease. He is knocked backward, just cursing up a storm and wailing in agony. And Virginia just takes a step toward him and dares him to hit her. He cowers. He is afraid. And he doesn't lay a finger on her after that. This is a huge moment for Virginia that, dare I say, alters her path in life. She sees that she can stand up for herself. Before this, she was afraid that she would lose her father's love if she fought back. And now she knows there was never any love lost because he didn't love her to begin with. And that taught her a lesson that she would take with her for the rest of her life. Men are not to be loved. They are to be used, just like they use women. This lesson, while incredibly heartbreaking, will take her very far in life. Yeah, but I don't think uh, our seven-year-old Virginia has any clue it's going to lead her to the headquarters of organized crime. But now she knows. She can have anything if she just has the courage to take it. At 17 years old, Virginia Hill is using men to make something of herself. She's married to a guy that is willing to help her move to Chicago. But here's the thing. He's not important. He's not important to me. He's not important to you. He's definitely not important to Virginia. Frankly, you don't really need to know his name because as soon as she gets herself settled there, she dumps him. Now, this sounds pretty cold-hearted, but I got to tell you, I'm I'm not mad at her. You yeah. know, it's the 1930s and women are incredibly limited in how they can travel, how they can move, how they can sort of live their life. So if this is what she needs to do to get ahead, I'm in. She's using the patriarchy to her benefit. And, you know, Virginia has grown up. She's a woman now. She's no longer this small, waif-like, you know, little girl. She's now this buxom, red-headed beauty. She's charming. She's funny. She's flamboyant. She's gorgeous. I mean, she's sat. Listen, she's taken what lot she was given in life, and she's going to use it to her benefit. Plus, you love redheads. Anyway. And I'm into redheads. Around this same time in 1934, she starts working as a waitress at the San Carlo Restaurante in Chicago's Italian Village. It's this Roman-inspired villa-looking place with really pricey entrees. You know, it's old-world style and class. Hollywood glamour. Well, Chicago glamour because we're in Chicago. But this isn't just any Italian restaurant. No, no, no. It's owned by none other than Al Capone. And it's patronized by members of Chicago's organized crime gang known as The Outfit. And Virginia Hill knows these fellas. She's waiting on Capone's gang. She's waiting on the bookkeeper, Joe Epstein. No relation to Jeffrey. Like most of the men in her life, though, he's immediately just taken with her. She has guts. She doesn't play games. She's this sassy waitress. And despite the big tips he's giving her, she gives back a cold shoulder. And he likes when broads play hard to get, I guess. And this all comes full circle when he runs into her at a party that summer and he asks her, why are you so cold to me? I tip better than anyone else in the restaurant. And she tells him, you know, she was doing okay brushing him off. It's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I feel like that was, that's the, like, 
you know, you'd be so much prettier if you smile, sweetheart. And she's like, I'm not going to smile. <laughs> like, I mean, the thing is, this interested him, this hard-to-get behavior to begin with. So I think her response, he really gets a kick out of it. And he starts calling her Flamingo after her long legs, red hair, and how flushed her face gets after a couple of drinks. Same, Virginia. Same. The two of them end up talking all night long, and by the end of the party, Joe decides that Virginia could be an asset to the outfit and their ring of crime. Joe starts Virginia off with just small jobs, laundering money at the Chicago horse track. So what she would do is place bets on rigged games and then report the earnings to the IRS, making it seem like a legitimate income. And for her trouble, Virginia gets to keep 10%. And also he teaches her how to lure men into making sucker bets, which frankly sounds sexual, but it's not. It's actually betting on the competitor who seems like they're going to win, but actually she has insider information that the competition is rigged for the underdog. And Virginia was just born to do this work. I mean, using men for her own end, it's kind of her M.O. And it doesn't take her long to prove herself at this job. So Joe Epstein decides she deserves a little bit of a promotion. He wants her to smuggle stolen goods across state lines. In fact, with her gorgeous looks, her Hollywood looks, and her sharp tongue, she's actually the perfect person for this job. So he takes her shopping in the North Loop of Chicago, where there's a lot of ritzy stores. And at this point in our story... Um, cue montage music. I feel like we're like in the dressing room and she's trying on the totally. looks and she's choosing all the me- like the very expensive clothing and then I feel like maybe like let's go get a fur and then he's taking her out to fancy restaurants and setting her up in her new expensive apartment on the North Shore. And from the outside looking in, Virginia and Joe, they look like a couple. Pretty happy one at that. He's paying her $3,000 a week as an allowance, and he's parading her around town like she's his girl. But the truth is, she's actually his protege. And he's like a big brother to her. Yeah, there's actually even rumors that Joe Epstein's gay and that Virginia is his beard, which we cannot confirm, but we love it. We do. We love it. I love the idea of the two of them just like skirting societal norms and benefiting one another to get ahead. And it makes the montage better when you're like shopping with your gay. That's fun. Like, (laughs) that's a more fun montage. It's even more fun. Oh my gosh, I love that montage. And I bet all the clothes just fit her perfectly because it's a montage. So that's how they roll. Um, But all of this shopping and parading is for obviously a reason. I mean, it's probably very fun, but also it's to set her up for her next job. Virginia is now going to smuggle stolen jewels and clothes onto a plane and out of state so they can sell them for a higher rate, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You get it. But She's not going to just smuggle them in her suitcase or under her clothes. Virginia is going to smuggle them in plain sight. Right. So she covers every inch of her body in diamonds, drapes herself in furs, all stolen by the outfit. And she just saunters through security like a, a wealthy debutante and casually boards, well, wherever she's headed, a plane, a train, in first class, of course. 
and she's relishing in the attention she's drawing, right? She's drawing attention in these furs and diamonds from just people she's passing on their way. And she's loving that she gets to dupe these poor police officers who would never dare question her because she looks rich as hell. Yeah, she's on, it's like she's using these airport runways as her catwalk. Like, I feel like she's having a great time. And she's delivering the goods all over to Michigan, to Indiana, uh, as far as Miami even. And she never once catches the attention of the police. By 1935, Virginia is about to be promoted yet again. She's really good at her jobs. Joe Epstein brings her to Indiana to the Plantation Club. Don't love the name, but what it was, was it's an out-of-state headquarters for the Capone Gang. Now, this is a place where members of the outfit could unwind without worrying about cops or reporters. And they and their girlfriends and their wives, the mob wives and the mistresses and the girlfriends, they would mingle in the front room, which was made to look like the house from Gone with the Wind. And in the back of the Plantation Club is a soundproof room where the men of the outfit go. And that's, you know, it's the cigar time. The men are going to leave the women and they're going to go make their plans. In all the time that this room has existed, only men have been allowed in. The mob wives, the girlfriends, they're all staying in front. Um, They're having their mojitos. Business talk is off limits. But on this day, Virginia Hill is invited into the back room. You mean she's going to be in the room where it happens? Where it all happens, baby. (laughs) And she's given a seat at the table. And this finally solidifies her place as a true member of the Chicago outfit and will eventually lead her to be a force to be reckoned with. So with Virginia's new position, she's riding high. She feels great. She's also become sort of, I guess, what you would call a a main character, right? Like a major player here. Uh, Unlike the mob wives and girlfriends, who she would consider window dressing. You know, they're just sort of objects for their gangster boyfriends. And while Virginia's partners in crime may look at her similarly, which is to say as a sex object... She's okay with that. She's more than fine with it, actually, because being underestimated is an asset, and she's going to lean into that. So she's not afraid to use her feminine wiles to get intel and secrets from her competition. But even Joe Epstein thinks she might take this a bit too far. There's this one story in the book Bugsy Baby about a Christmas party where Virginia is rubbing elbows with these high rollers when one of them tells her that she's a major tease, which to her is like a big affront, right? He says to her, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? And Virginia, uh, not to be outdone by this guy, says, how about I put my mouth where the money is? And she proceeds to give oral sex to all the top mob men around her at this party. I bet it shut him up. (laughs) (laughs) I think, like, she kind of has to go in, like, guns blazing in some way. But Joe Epstein, her friend, her pseudo big brother, is repulsed by this. He's not into this moment. And the mob wives who heard about it and some were there are pretty disgusted too. One of them goes up to her and calls her a whore. Wow. Shots fired. Literally, figuratively, shots are All shots are things. getting fired. Shots. I mean, there's so happening. many shots. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just love picturing this party. It's a wild time, right? So this woman comes up to her and says, you're a horse. So Virginia slaps her. She slaps her in the face, grabs her by the hair and says, I'm the best damn sucker in Chicago. And I got the diamonds to prove it. I ain't doing nothing that you haven't done. And I don't see any diamonds on you. By 1937, Virginia's powers of manipulation are turned directly to Chicago's competition, New York City. The Chicago outfit and the New York mob, they're becoming pals. They've recently agreed that, you know what, we're stronger together than apart. Ooh, we love unity. It's a romance. Actually, after years of gang warfare, they've just, they've started sharing in each other's scams. I mean, it makes sense. It's like, hey, we're both criminals. Why don't we work together? You know, I do think we're stronger together. Mm -hmm. Okay, there, I said it. But these are also fellow mobsters. And I think it's safe to say that they aren't the most trustworthy people to do business with. Call me crazy. Mm -hmm. Just a thought. And Joe Epstein specifically isn't quite sure that they're holding up there under the bargain. And in particular, he's pretty suspicious about this guy, Joe Adonis. Well, first of all, they do have the same name, so it's natural there would be some skepticism there. It's like a who wore it best situation right away. One is Epstein and the other is Adonis. I choose Adonis. I mean, the name. Whoa, I like whoa, Adonis. whoa. You say that, but Adonis is actually like this pudgy, womanizing gangster. Uh, he runs a bunch of New York's racketeering operations. And I don't think that Epstein is crazy because if anyone is cheating Chicago of their cut, it's Adonis. So Epstein sends Virginia to New York to cozy up to him and collect some intel. In truth, he hates Adonis and wants the proof he needs in order to get a hit on this guy. Right, because we don't have like a criminal justice system in the mob, but they do want some proof, which I just think is kind of a, they have their own little system that they're working within. Now, Virginia meets Adonis under the guise that she is a low-level Chicago money launderer. We know that's not the case, but their first rendezvous is, quote, electric. Within a matter of weeks, she has him wrapped around her diamond-encrusted finger. She starts running scams with him, all while still laundering money for Epstein. And while she's doing this, she meets one of his henchmen, who is a total smoke show, by the way, named Ben Siegel. But his friends call him Bugsy, because of course they do. Ugh. Because of course they do. It's the 1930s. There's a gangster named Bugsy. I'm in. Now, Bugsy Siegel is Adonis's top earner, but he's also his biggest rival in New York. The two absolutely hate each other. They're constantly finding ways to take a dig at one another, and when Bugsy sees Adonis's new girl, he immediately swoops in to steal her. Yeah, they're very first so meeting. Predictable. He like goes up and kisses Virginia's hand and flirts with her right in front of Adonis. And you know what? It works like Next up, they start a very steamy affair. Well, Virginia's like, this guy Bugsy, what a hottie. I'm in. And unfortunately, Adonis takes notice, and he notices Virginia is becoming more and more distant. And when he confirms that Virginia is sleeping with Bugsy, his underling, his rival, he is absolutely outraged and also fronts that he could care less. God, the fragile ego of these guys. Yeah. It's really something to behold. They they may seem tough, but the ego, so fragile. <laughs> but their hearts, but their hearts and egos. Virginia, she's not going to get off scot-free. 
Adonis tells the outfit what she's up to, and they're pissed. Because she's supposed to be on a diplomatic mission, not on a vacation, not on a love boat. I mean, they did send her over there to, like, woo him. So it feels a little like, all right, make up your mind. Well, wrong guy, outfit, though. Right? A little bit? <laughs> she she casts a wide net, that Virginia. <laughs> she did. She got a little confused. And she's basically put on probation with the Chicago outfit. Her salary is diminished from six figures to $15,000, which is still a lot of money, but also that's a big dip in income. And she's demoted from a Park Avenue apartment to a less luxurious hotel. Oof, rough life. Rough life for Yeah, this affair's not really working out that great for anybody because Bugsy gets sent packing, too, off to Hollywood where Adonis doesn't have to look at his smug face. And for a long while, these two are far apart. But their chemistry will bring them back together, and the results will be spectacular. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I don't want to glorify crime or anything, but can I say I do sort of respect the hell out of this woman who's breaking the glass ceiling in the mob? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's fascinating that I, she got there. Nobody had done this before. I don't know how many have done it since. Yeah. And I, I also find it so fascinating that she's using what pigeonhole society has labeled her for to her advantage, uh -huh. right? Like, yeah, she does a lot of questionable things. I don't think I would do what she did at that party That's a while really back. That's really good to know. But like, Noted. Thank you. Thank you. Carrie just My got taken off so, so many Christmas invites. You're going to be home this Christmas alone, <laughs> Carrie. I'm going to be home alone this Christmas. <laughs> Kevin McAllister, move. Outside. Um, but, like, but like, I like this idea that she's like, yeah, you treat women like objects. Okay, you can objectify me, but I'm going to take what I want in the meantime. Yeah, I, I like mean, that. I would say her strength is giving exactly zero f***s. Like, she feels like that phrase's origin story. Um, and I think just tons <laughs> of women are seen as objects and them wanting to be seen as more and focusing so much on what people say about them and how they're perceived actually is just mm -hmm. can be really limiting in a world that already has very limited possibilities for them. But Virginia, on the other hand, is like, oh, here's the thing. I don't care at all what you think of me. I just care what I get at the end of the story. This punishment and demotion is a 
pretty darn big setback for our Virginia. This one guy, Bugsy, really screwed up a good thing that she had going with the mob. And she's embarrassed herself. She's embarrassed her mentor, Joe Epstein. And she's lost a lot of goodwill. And unfortunately, with that, she's lost a lot of power. She's a fighter. And she has ways of getting exactly what she wants. And she's willing, again, to use any man who will get her back into business. By 1940, Virginia's moved west all the way to 90210 Beverly Hills, California. Heard of it? She marries a Mexican nightclub dancer named Miguelito Valdez. But it is not for his dance moves, and it is not for love. It's just an arrangement so that she can get him American citizenship and he can give her Spanish lessons, actually. I don't know if that seems like an equal trade to me, but whatever. She hasn't Virginia heard of Duolingo. Season- <laughs> like- <laughs> they don't have Duolingo at this moment. So she's like, this is how I'm going to get some free lessons. Now, she does this because she knows that Chicago is interested in starting a relationship with the Southwestern drug cartels. But what they don't have at the moment is a diplomat. And she sees that opening as her opportunity back in. So she's finally learned enough Spanish from Valdez to get by, and she tricks him, English being not his first language, into signing divorce papers. She then begins to curry favor with the cartels and, shocker, uses sex as a way to get close to them and uses her charm to convince them to team up with Chicago. It's smart business for a dark thing because the cartel supplies heroin and Chicago provides the means to sell it all over the U.S. So I would say this is probably the worst thing that she does. But with this new deal, Virginia is able to get back into the good graces of Joe Epstein, her friend. She essentially becomes the key go-between for the cartel and the Chicago outfit. And she ends up transporting heroin across the country, dressed again in her finest furs and diamonds, just like she used to. Back on the catwalk. And in return, she's getting as much money as she wants, whenever she wants. She's back in their good graces. And more than that, she is back in the New York mob's good graces. Everyone's benefiting from this new arrangement, except the people addicted to heroin, you might argue. But Virginia, she's riding high as a top gangster again. Now, around the same time, Virginia and Bugsy Siegel... They've met up again, and they're picking up where they left off. They're reigniting their affair. They're hot. They're attracted to each other in Hollywood. You really think they were going to let someone else decide when it was over? Absolutely not. As Virginia would later put it, Bugsy is the greatest of all her lovers and the most handsome, too. He's got the Hollywood good looks to match hers, and boom, romance. But they're not just in L.A. for romance or for a good time. There is business to be had in the desert nearby because they're going to Las Vegas. Bugsy Siegel has just bought himself a cut of a new hotel casino called The Flamingo. (gasps) Any relation to her? None. It is a new venture for the mob. They've been operating gambling halls and casinos for years, but they've always been illegal underground operations. And with the Flamingo, now they're going to be operating a legal casino. 
They can now make their money out fully in the open without worrying that the feds are going to bust them. They don't have to hide their money anymore. It's like a really big opportunity for the mob. Sure, but Virginia isn't really interested in it. She's actually just interested in Bugsy. So she goes along with him to the barren desert that is Las Vegas. Because keep in mind, at this point, the Vegas Strip, not a thing. The Flamingo is actually one of the first casinos to open on what will become the Strip. So while Bugsy is managing the opening, Virginia is still running her drug smuggling operation out of the Southwest. Can you say power couple? Power couple. What do you think their um, power couple name? What do you think their celebrity name would be? Bergsy or Buginia? <laughs> <laughs> Flamingo. None of those have a great Flamingbug. Yeah, I like that. Bug Flamingo. And I got to say, it's a very good thing Virginia's not involved in this Flamingo deal because the Flamingo isn't the golden goose it's been promised. Little does Virginia know that her boyfriend Bugsy is actually skimming money off his own bosses. He's stealing the investments in the Flamingo for himself. And so the project is falling behind. And on opening night, the hotel is still under construction. The casino's barely operational, and all the guests end up leaving for the other casinos in downtown Las Vegas. It's a total flop, and the mob is furious. And on top of him being a really crappy manager of this casino, he's also stealing money from the mob. I can't get over just how bad of an idea this is. And all while this is happening, he's getting more aggressive, and he's getting violent with Virginia. Listen, Virginia's not one to obey a man, so when she doesn't listen to everything he's saying, he starts abusing her. And she does the thing where she covers up the visible marks with makeup, but everybody knows what he's doing to her. And according to one person who is at the opening of the Flamingo, Virginia's brother, Chick Hill, confronts Bugsy in the casino lobby. He tells him that if he hits Virginia again, there will be consequences. But I don't think this really matters much to Bugsy. He kind of just shrugs it off. He's not afraid of anybody. It, yeah. <laughs> I just can't imagine being like, I'm going to flop this hotel. I'm going to beat this woman. And I'm going to steal money from the mob. Like, what on earth are you doing? You're not that good looking. Relax. You're not that. No one's that <laughs> good looking to do any of that, right? Get out of there. And Virginia, you know what she does? She gets the hell out of there. She's not about to let Bugsy start controlling her. She's made it this far in life. She has her relationships with Chicago and New York still intact. So to avoid being collateral damage, she leaves the country for Paris for a while until things cool off. On June 20th, 1947, while Virginia's away, Bugsy Siegel is lounging at her Beverly Hills house. And the style, the style this place has. Uh, The living room's got Baroque furniture, floral upholstery, oil paintings, black marble cherubs line the walls. You know, it's it's not my taste, but sure. Bugsy is relaxed. He's calm. He's not worried about his future. Even though rumors have been swirling that the mobs put a hit out on him, he's not scared. For one... He always carries protection, and his friends do too. I mean, Bugsy is the guy you would call if you wanted to kill someone. He's the muscle. And so he's just sort of daring them to come try to kill him. I, again, such a weird thing to do. (laughs) You're dealing with very dangerous people. But also, while he's in the house, upstairs is Virginia Hill's brother, Chick Hill. 
And Bugsy doesn't heed Chick's warning about abusing Virginia, and now he's sharing a space with the man who threatened his life? Again, interesting move. Bugsy, I gotta tell you, maybe you should be a little scared. Because around 11 o'clock that night, Bugsy is sitting on the couch, he's reading the evening newspaper, when suddenly, gunshots shatter the garden windows. Bugsy's body is riddled with bullets in a matter of seconds including two fatal shots to his head, leaving him slumped on the couch with the L.A. Times he had been reading blood-soaked by his feet. Exactly three minutes later, 100 miles away, New York mobsters roll up to the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, and they seize control and start cleaning up the mess Bugsy Siegel made. I mean, I hearing all the things that Bugsy was doing, again, stealing from the mob, the casino flopping, abusing Virginia, um, and the cockiness with which she was like, no one's going to get me. Well, I, they got him, Joe. We did, did it, Joe. Why think they that? I just can't, like, I'm like, really? Have you never seen, I don't know, even like a movie made about your own people? <laughs> Well, it is the 1930s. They weren't making them yet. I don't know how many movies. They weren't making the movies yet. Godfather doesn't come out. That's where we learned. That's where I learned that they're dangerous. So I'm not sure. It seems like Bugsy really needed to time travel and watch The Goodfellas. And then he might have taken this all a little more seriously. And then he might have heeded the warning. But I also think what's interesting is he had security. He had bodyguards in Vegas. Mm -hmm. So like clearly he knew he needed protection. But in L.A., he didn't have any bodyguards. He just had the gun that he was carrying yeah. on him. I wonder if he was like, I'm small potatoes. They're not going to get on an airplane to kill me. Like, maybe he felt like he's in danger in Vegas, but then he'd be fine in Beverly Hills. Plus, he's looking around this room with these oil paintings and these cherubs, and it's like... (laughs) And the marble. He's like, no one would dare ruin this with blood splatter. No one would commit a crime here, right? Never. Never. These cherubs? Absolutely not. I mean, it is predictable, Bugsy's end, but I got to say that Virginia being in Paris... Hello, alibi. Like, I feel like I bet she got some warning. We don't know this. This is conjecture. But, like, I wouldn't be surprised if someone's like, Virginia, you should really go uh, shopping. Take a trip. Go shopping. I got you a gift card to Paris. (laughs) I bought you a gift card to Paris. When you get to the airport, you can cash it in. (laughs) Anyway, Virginia's out of there now, though. I mean, like, Virginia does say that. You know, her and Bugsy did have something special, so I'm sure this loss, you know, I'm sure she feels it. But also, she's got to move on with her life. She's got bigger and better things to do. The Chicago outfit and the New York mob are growing their operations in Vegas. They've reopened the Flamingo, and they've started building even more casinos on the Vegas Strip. Thanks to Virginia, they're also spreading heroin throughout the United States, and they're just racketeering it up. They're racketeering all over the place. There's clearly a lot of crime happening at this time, and not only that, but organized crime gangs in Kansas City, Miami, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and Baltimore are also getting in on the action, too. And it's not like this is all happening without notice. The feds are watching. They see what's going on in the country and in the halls of Congress. These mobsters are bribing politicians. They are playing a very dangerous game, and folks in Washington are not pleased. 
So when Virginia Hill returns to the U.S. from one of her many out-of-the-country trips, she's slapped with a subpoena. Congress would like to speak to her about her criminal connections. And as you could imagine, Virginia is not too pleased with this summons. She knows her chickens are coming home to roost. Yes, it's out with the flamingo. It's in with the chickens. <laughs> She's not the only one being summoned. New York crime bosses Frank Costello, Joe Adonis, and Meyer Lansky are also called. Chicago bosses Tony Accardo and Louis Campagna are also called. Leaders and political greasers from mobs in L.A. and Kansas City make an appearance, too. It's a national party. It's a who's who of Murder, Inc. all coming together in a congressional hearing. And then we make all these jokes about a party. They've heard about how good she is at a party. Now, this congressional hearing will become known as the Kefauver Committee. It's led by an ambitious young senator named Estes Kefauver. Listen, just a fun historical side note here. Estes Kefauver actually wanted to be the one to lead another more famous committee, one that was Hmm. investigating un-American activities in the United States. But unfortunately for him, yeah, that committee was given to a guy named Joseph McCarthy. Anyway, back to the Kefauver of it all. These aren't just any congressional hearings. They are televised congressional hearings. And even though you've probably never heard of them, unlike uh, the McCarthy Committee, which you maybe have heard of, these hearings are the first time that all the dots of organized crime are put together. In other words, they're the reason we know so much about mobsters today. They put the pieces together for us. And they did so in dramatic fashion. In 1950, Virginia Hill arrives at the Foley Square Courthouse in New York to give her testimony. And she's only 34 years old. It's kind of amazing to think how many lives she's lived at the age of 34. Honestly, makes me feel a little bit bad about myself. She waltzes into the courthouse dressed in a $5,000 mink cape. That's where I get a little jealous. And a broad-brimmed hat and silk gloves. She's surrounded by newspaper photographers and onlookers that are eager to see the drama of the day's hearings. Now, Virginia is cool and collected at the start. She brushes off the cameras and takes a seat at the long wooden table while the five members of the committee sit in a judge's bench above her. And it all starts out fairly cordial with the members of the Kefauver Committee asking her how she made so much money and affords all the nice things that she has. Well, I worked a while. Then the men I was around that gave me things were not gangsters or racketeers or whatever you call these other people. The only time I ever got anything from them was going out and having fun and maybe a few presents. Like a lot of girls that they've uh, given me things and bought me everything I want. Then when I was with Ben, he paid for everything. By Ben, you mean Ben Siegel? Yes. And uh, he gave me some money, too, and bought me a house in Florida. But then things get a little more specific. They want to know about the money that mob bosses have given Virginia. They suspect she's more involved than she lets on. She's not just a girlfriend. She's a member. But Virginia, she gets a little saucy as things heat up. Did you ever get any money from uh, Costello? No. And uh, did you ever uh, get any money from Maya Lansky? 
I never got money from any of those fellas. None of those fellas. None of those fellas. None of the... None, none of, of these that I've been reading about or none that I knew, they never gave me anything. None of the shadows? No. I don't even speak to them. I, I mean, I met that Charlie once or twice. I don't even talk to him. You don't like him? No. Just hearing her, you can tell Virginia's one of those people who's funny even when she's not trying to be. And she's making the crowd laugh several times throughout her testimony. It's no wonder she's been so successful. Her charm is on full display when the committee asks her all about the money she made at the Chicago racetrack and how she feels like her success at gambling is being used against her. Now I'm afraid I'll win, and then they'll say I made more money than I did. You mean you just don't want to win anymore? I don't want anymore. But the members of the committee are not as charmed as the onlookers. They've heard testimony from hundreds of people involved in the mob, and they know that Virginia is a courier for money and stolen goods. At least one member of the Chicago outfit admitted that Virginia carried money between Chicago and New York for the mob bosses. An agent for the internal revenue that you were on occasion asked to carry cash between Chicago and New York. That is not true, and if they told that, they told a lie. The only cash I've ever carried is what belonged to me. And I've never carried anything for anybody. And if anyone said that, that's a big lie. And I don't care who said it. If anybody said you said it, yes, because the only cash I ever carried was my own, and I never carried anything for anybody, cash or any anything else. You never carried anything. No, I didn't. Virginia realizes she may have bitten off more than she can chew. A congressional subpoena is not something you can ignore, but plenty of other mobsters skipped out on the hearings with various success. Or they pled the fifth. But Virginia was very careful not to cross her partners in crime. She said just enough to be truthful most of the time, but always ultimately misled them. In part, she's lucky that her role is so minimized by these dudes because she's mostly just referred to as Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, which is an eye roll. But it does end up helping her because they're not really after her. They're after her bosses. And she doesn't give them an inch. Her testimony captures the attention of the entire nation. The Kefauver Committee says that she's their star witness. But on the way out of the hearing room, she is furious. Yeah, she's just screaming obscenities at the press. And she even ends up slugging a female reporter named Marjorie Farnsworth. She knocks Marjorie to the ground and then covers her own face while walking quickly through the corridors and then climbs into a cab that's waiting for her and tells reporters that she hopes an atomic bomb falls on them. Now, Virginia held her own in these hearings. She lied, but that's exactly what her bosses want. And also, it's proof that she's going to protect her boss's secrets as well as her own. So while it keeps her sort of in the good graces of her bosses, she does know deep down that the feds have enough to charge her with something. She knows that her time is up. In 1954, Virginia Hill is indicted for tax evasion, which, look, on its face, that sounds like a pretty minor charge considering all the stuff we know Virginia did. But it is the same charge that sent Al Capone to prison two decades ago, and she is not going to jail. She's going to run. Her face is plastered on wanted posters in post offices, city halls, and police departments from California to New York City. There is Virginia's face 
all along the way. Clearly, she's not just wanted for a few unpaid back taxes. She's actually listed as number three on the FBI's most wanted list. So that means she has two targets on her back, one from the feds, another from the mob. Obviously, they know that Virginia can keep her mouth shut. She proved it at the Kefauver hearings. But they also know she's always looking out for herself and that she is pretty conniving. So if she were to be offered a plea deal, who knows which mobsters she would sell out. It would just be easier for the mob to take care of her and save themselves the trouble. And Virginia is very aware of all of this. She doesn't have many more options. But luckily, she did have a bit of an insurance policy put in place for times like this. Right. A few years earlier, Virginia actually got married to an Austrian ski instructor she met in Idaho, of all places. Now she has a home in Austria, if need be. And I I don't know much about the relationship, but let's recall that she does believe men are not to be loved. They are to be used. And as soon as the charges drop on Virginia... She skips town and catches a ride to Austria to be with her beloved husband and away from the law. For the next 12 years, Virginia moves around Europe, meeting with her mob friends. You know, sounds fun, probably getting some martinis along the way. And she reconnects with Joe Epstein, who provides her with money for most of the rest of her life. Isn't that all we're looking Ugh. for? So I'm, I'm looking for my own Jeff, Joe Epstein. A, a gay best friend to give us money and take us shopping to last a lifetime. But <laughs> somehow that's not enough because I will tell you that Virginia is depressed. And by the mid-1960s, she's telling friends and family that she wants to commit suicide. She's getting really sick of feeling these two targets on her back. She's running from the police. She's worried that around the next corner, there's going to be a mobster waiting to off her. She ends up overdosing on sedatives, and she has to be revived at the hospital. And this is not a one-time thing. This happens seven times. And this happens until March 24th, 1966. Virginia Hill's body is found underneath a tree in a snowbank outside of Salzburg, Austria. With the body is a note that reads, I'm tired of living. She's only 49 years old. But this ending is not what you would label clear-cut. A lot of people speculate that this wasn't suicide and that it was the mob finally getting rid of Virginia Hill. It is it is a sad ending. I can imagine for many reasons why she would be depressed at this time. I can't imagine having such power and autonomy and the ability to make your own money and make your own way in the world and then not only, obviously, she has to leave her home, but I think all sort of opportunity is also stripped from her. She also has a son. She had a son with that guy, Hans, that she married, the Austrian ski instructor. Um, his name is Peter, and she lives with him, even though she and Hans end up separating. She lives with her son till she's dead, and he's only 16 when she uh, you know, ends up in that snowbank. Which, by the way, if you were going to take a bunch of uh, pills or something— I don't know. In a snowbank? There's something about that that weirds me. I mean, I would just think, like, lie down on the bed. Why are you doing it out in a snowbank? Well, she's tried seven times, and probably because she's been caught seven times. So it sounds like she might have to distance herself from anyone finding her. She didn't want to be found. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
That's my that's my guess. Well, I think here's what we know that leads me to think there is um there is probable cause to say she did not do it. There's foul play involved. Well, three days before she died, Joe Epstein got a letter from her with a key to a bank box. The bank box had her diary in it. And he doesn't go open it. He doesn't go open it till after she dies several days later, which the timing's just a little weird. It makes you wonder if he knew something was going to happen. And supposedly there was a report written that stated that there was some bruising on her neck and that they didn't exactly check to see what it was that killed her. They don't know what was in her system. They don't know if it was pills, if it was poison. They don't know. Well, I mean, I think for every piece of information that we can say there was foul play, there's probably the same amount of information that it is what it was, a suicide. So that's, I think, what makes this so challenging is it feels like on both sides, there's plenty of reason to suspect both. Yeah. I mean, I'm inclined myself. I don't know why I want it to be a murder. I think because it, it is like sadder that it's a suicide somehow. Yeah. Um, like to see her fall from this place where she was riding so high. But she was clearly paranoid, depressed, and had done this many, many times right. before. So when you stack that up, you do sort of say, it looks like this really was a fall from grace and that she couldn't recover. She couldn't find a life that made her feel as fulfilled as that mob life did. It's really interesting, too, because a lot of the research about Virginia's life is under the under sort of the um, umbrella of Bugsy's girlfriend. It's like I'm super excited to share her story, just her story, because Bugsy is just like a little blip in her life, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, let's give her story sort of the energy it's owed. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. The book entitled Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, The Gangster, The Flamingo, and the Making of Modern Las Vegas by Larry Gregg. Another book entitled Bugsy's Baby, The Secret Life of Mob Queen Virginia Hill by Andy Edmonds, and research from the Las Vegas Mob Museum. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.